So last week, um, I preached a sermon on suffering, and uh, I just feel that the Lord is uh, asking me to uh, apply that this week. And uh, there's a lovely text I want you to turn to in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 25. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to do a, a brief recap of last week's sermon in case you missed it. Um, so, so last week, we were talking about suffering, and there were three things we found out in the very first verse that we looked at last week, and that the first one is suffering will come. It might be in your past, it might be in your present, it might be in your future, but it's part of the Christian walk. And anyone who preaches a gospel that says everything's going to go well with you after you surrender your life to Christ, and if something's going wrong, you need to sort it out, um, they're not being honest with you because throughout Scripture we see God's faithful people going through times of trial and difficulty, and God teaches that He uses it. He uses it to build our character. He uses it to uh, grow patience in us. Um, he uses it to establish the hope that we have. Um, and uh, we also learned last week that actually every single thing that happens to the believer, to the one who loves God, he will use it for his good. Every single thing that happens, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. And so this morning we're going to see how that plays out in the life of Paul, the one who wrote uh, that letter to the Romans last week. And in this story, I'll just give you a bit of uh, well, let's read it together first. Let's do that. So, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night <clears throat> and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Father, this morning we come to your word again, dependent on you, dependent on your Holy Spirit. We're asking you, Lord, to open up these words to us and to help us to understand. Would you open up our hearts and our ears and our minds to understand what the Spirit is saying to us this morning and help us to know how to put it into practice and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So some background to the story. In the earlier chapter, um, Paul and Silas have arrived in Philipp, uh, Philippi, and they are there because God has sent them there, and they're there to preach the gospel. And they've had some success. They've met a lady called Lydia, um, and uh, a couple of other good things have happened. But suddenly they encounter this uh, uh, 
slave owner with the slave girl who's got a, a demonically uh, empowered gifting to tell the future. So she can tell the future, but it's by demons, and they are using her to make money out of her. So it's a profit-making uh, business. And she kind of follows Paul and Silas around and keeps using her gifting, kind of telling everyone who they are. And Paul eventually gets a bit irritated with her and turns around and says, I command uh, you to leave her now. And the demon leaves her and she can no longer tell the future. And the business tanks. And the business owners are very upset. And they grab hold of Paul and Silas and they drag them into the city square. And they get the whole town there and the magistrates. And they say, these people are here teaching false things that go against um, the laws that we are meant to be following. And um, they rile everyone up, and the magistrates even say, right, okay, um, in the midst of that chaos, they give this frenzied crowd rods. And they say, just beat them. And I mean, the law said, the Roman law said, you could only uh, hit someone 39 times, and then you had to stop. But even that isn't what's happened here. There was no control. This was not one person doing a beating, a control thing, even 39 is bad. We have no idea how many times Paul and Silas were hit. The assumption is far more than 39 times because no one was keeping count. And there were many people all going at it. It was chaos. And eventually, they, uh, without trial, take them into uh, to a jailer and say, lock these guys up in the inner prison, not just in prison, not just like you see in the American movies where they've got that one little, you know, holding cell and you're in there and there's nice space and whatever, and maybe one other bad guy. They are in the inner prison with the murderers and the, the most hardened cr criminals. And even then, he puts them in stocks. So it says their feet are placed in stocks. They can't even move. Suffice to say, they're having a bad day. Okay. And we enter the story at midnight. I just want to give you some context here. You can hear my throat's a little bit scratchy. I was up at midnight a couple of nights ago, feeling desperately sorry for myself. I could not sleep. My throat was sore. I desperately wanted to sleep. And let me tell you, if you had come to my house at midnight to sing songs and praise the Lord, you might have questioned my salvation by... <laughs> my reaction. I am not surprised that Paul and Silas are awake at midnight. They have open wounds. We see later in the story. Open wounds. They can't move. They are lying on a hardened floor or whatever position they're in. Matt Chandler says that it was possible that their body was actually contorted into a very uncomfortable position. So not just put your feet there and lie back, but find a way to really make this awkward and uncomfortable for you. They are in pain and they are uncomfortable. I get that they are awake at midnight. But, and this is the first point, the fact that Paul and Silas, in response to this situation, this is what we were talking about last week in suffering, they are going through a bad day. They are going through a time of suffering. But their response is, in verse 25, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And that just blows my mind. 
And what we spoke about last week is when you try and find your happiness or your joy in your circumstances, you can never really be happy even when things are going well. Because what's coming around the corner? The richest person in the world, if his security is in his riches, can never feel truly safe because he knows better than anyone that he cannot, uh, he doesn't know what's coming. He's constantly worrying about how to protect. And even with regards to our health, I told you last week, I met with someone, a member of our church, and she's fearful over her family's health, but no one's sick. And you go, but Mark, it makes sense. It does make sense. I get it. I'm also fearful over our family. But the point is, even if your trust is in health, it means even when you have health, you still are fearful. You still don't have freedom. You still don't have joy because what is coming next? And if you really want to experience the joy that these two found, you've got to find your place of trust in something that doesn't change. It doesn't matter that they are in a prison. It doesn't matter that their body is broken and beaten and bleeding. Their place of joy has not changed. They have a strong relationship with the Lord. They don't just have an intellectual relationship with the Lord. They don't just have a... um, I'm some way in over here. I'll give you some of my life relationship with the Lord. You're going, how did they get to this place? And some of it is what Lauren said to you. And here's the key. They love God with everything. And they live lives that is obedient to Him. Why were they there? Because they were being obedient to what He told them to do. So when we are living lives of obedience, despite our suffering. Because our joy comes from this place that is not dependent on circumstances, it is possible that even though those circumstances are overwhelming and should be overwhelming you, um, the strong believer who has a strong relationship with the Lord, who finds their trust in the God who doesn't change, can rejoice. These guys were not faking it. You can't fake this. They were not lying there going, oh man, it really sucks. Let's just pretend to be happy. Something happened in their spirits while they were there when they realized God is still with us and God is using us and we are here because of him. We've been obedient to him. And so something welled up within them where they just started praising and singing and praying to God. And the question I ask myself is, Mark, if I have a sore throat have to be pretty bleak in the middle of the night, am I really centered in my relationship with Christ? Or have I allowed my circumstances to overtake my joy? It drives me back to God's Word. It makes me go, no, Lord, I need to spend more time with you. Lord, I need to spend more time listening to you. I need to spend more time knowing what it is you want me to do, and I need to spend more time living in obedience. Because when you do that, this joy comes from this relationship of obedience. If I've met in your Bible study, um, or even if you have the misfortune of encountering me on a daily basis in the staff, um, you'll know that I often ask a question, what's your out? And what I mean by that is, what is the thing that God's telling you that you must do? And when I get a blank stare, (laughs) which happens, um, and not just on the outside, even on staff, my fear for us is we need to be living in a relationship with God where we're expecting Him to speak to us and we're expecting Him to tell us things to do. 
So how can you find joy in your circumstances if you don't know what God's telling you to do and you're not being obedient to it? That's the secret Paul and Silas are showing you. They are doing what God has told them to do, and now it doesn't matter what happens to them. They are in a special place we long to find. And so my question would be to you, what is your out? And I want to tell you, while I'm just a normal human being, and so are they, by the way. They're not superheroes. Um, I, I, and I have lots of bad days. My out has been my youngest brother's not saved. So my out the last few weeks, and I don't have a relationship with him. Uh, we're estranged. And my out has been over the last few weeks to try and make contact with him, try and uh, first get hold of him. That was the first thing. That's difficult. The second thing was start talking. And then the third thing was actually meet. And then the fourth thing was challenge him in his relationship with God. And so yesterday... Um, after a series of weeks of these outs, and by the way, you've helped me in that. Some of you have asked me every week when I've told you, you've gone, you come, they come up to me at church. I love it. They come up to me and they say, Mark, did you do your out? Did you call your brother? And then if I haven't, I go, I need to get on this because these guys are, <laughs> are doing their job. They're doing it well. They're asking me. And this steps of obedience has led to yesterday meeting with my brother at um, uh, where he's staying and us having our first real conversation as brothers in three years, where he just unpacked all of his hurt and struggle and pain, and I could share my faith again with him. I've done it before, but I did it again. It was out of obedience. And one of the things has been Alpha. I've gone, Lord, I'm going to invite him to Alpha. And yesterday I invited him to Alpha, and guess what, guys? He's coming. What do you... So, what do you think that did to me when I left? I had to go to an, a wedding. The poor wedding had me as an MC. Never MC'd before. Messed everything up. Uh, the, I called up the toast before any of the champagne had come out. No, it was an absolute disaster. Uh, I didn't even realize I'd made that mistake. The poor guy comes up to do the toast, and he's like, right, let's all toast. And he was like, we don't have anything to drink. And I'm just like, you know, focusing on my next day. I didn't even realize. I, I carried on calling up the speeches. Um, so, but my point is... That whole wedding, man, I was floating. Why was I floating? Why was joy rising up in my heart? Because God had told me what to do, a practical step, and I went and I did it. And I'm telling you guys, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you, you read stories like that and you go, Mark, I don't experience that. I don't know what that looks like. I'm telling you what the secret is. The secret is to spend time with him. Let him speak to you and encourage you to do something a little bit uncomfortable, and then you go and you do it. And when you do it, that's when this thing starts to fly. Paul and Silas were in a habit of doing that all the time. John MacArthur writes this. He says, the key to having joy in every circumstance of life is to be filled with the Spirit. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, and yielding to his control produces songs of joy. The problem with sad, miserable Christians is not their circumstances, but the lack of living a spirit-controlled life. You might say to me, Mark, but if you saw what I'm going through, and this, and this, and this, you'd understand why, and I'm saying to you guys, you're falling for a lie. Your lack of joy has got nothing to do with your circumstances, and that's good news, because you can't control your circumstances sometimes. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. So if your joy was dependent on your circumstances, you would be forced by your circumstances to stay in 
an unhappy place. But if your joy is dependent on living a spirit-controlled life, there's good news for you. You can do something about that. So you go, what, Mark? This is it. Submit your whole life to Christ. Then ask for more of the Holy Spirit. And then you do what he tells you. It's those three things. Submit your whole life to Christ. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he talks because he's a real living person. And when he tells you something to do, you do it, then you're going. Some of us get stuck at the third step. We might submit our whole lives to Christ. We might even be able to pray and say, Lord, send me more of your spirit. But we're not sensitive enough to what he's saying or we don't want to do what he says. I did not want to call my brother. I did not want to meet with him. I was angry with him. And everything that has happened and what might still come from this is God's grace because I didn't want to do it. So if I'm going to live my life according to what I want to do, so if I'm the captain of the ship, then I'm not going to experience being obedient to God and the joy that comes from that. I'm going to have him as a part of my life and just there, and I'm going to do, maybe I'll come to church and do the the Christian things. But too many of us are miserable and sad, and we think it's because of our circumstances. It's not. We're not living lives yielded to the Holy Spirit. But you can do something about it. The second point uh, in the first verse is even more amazing to me. After about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. What? At midnight, in an inner cell, guys are praying and singing, and these hardened criminals are listening to them. This is actually the phrase that inspired the sermon. When I first read this chapter, well, I've read it a few times, but recently, when that, that just hit me. And I just thought, you know, people are always watching. I don't think Paul and Silas were trying to be evangelistic in that moment. I think they were enjoying their relationship with the Lord. And as they were enjoying their relationship with the Lord in an outward way, people were watching them. And I want to say this to you, Christian. People are watching you. Paul and Silas were responding to their trials so differently from what these men were used to that it intrigued them. You go, God, please end the trial. And I'm going, but Lord, help us to honor you and love you and serve you through the trial, just like Lauren's given a wonderful example of doing that. You have no idea who's not saved, who's watching that, who's going, how? How does she keep it? going? How does she keep serving? How does she stay um, at peace? There's people sitting here in this room who have told me stories where God is using you in that way. Cancer in the room. Cancer in the family. Lord, please take this thing away. Hasn't for two years. And suddenly colleagues and neighbors start showing up in the church services. And they say, it's because when we watch what these guys are going through, we go, we don't have that. If we were going through what they're going through, we wouldn't respond the way that they're responding. It's the wrong prayer sometimes to say, Lord, take away the trial. It's the right thing to, in the trial, say, Lord, I want your name to be glorified and I want you to use me. Man, the way that you live your life, people are watching. 
And when you are filled with joy, despite circumstances, and this is verbal though, hey? it's not just, you know, by osmosis, they were just standing there with a smile on their face. They still prayed out loud. They still praised out loud. There's a story of Ira Sankey. Anyone in the room know who that is? Me neither, I didn't. I only found out in my preparations that I feel bad. But um, he, uh, he was one of these gospel singers um, who accompanied, and I've forgotten, so I don't want to embarrass myself, but one of the great evangelists. So we'll know the evangelist if I remember his name, but the singer accompanied him and he'd always sing first. And he tells a story of being in the army and being at, at war and being on night watch, a centurion, and he heads out, you know, just inspired by the Lord the one night, he heads out into the open and he just starts praising the Lord and singing. And uh, several years later, once he'd started his ministry and they were on a ship and people recognized him and people said to him, Ira, you know, sing a song. And so he gets up and he sings this exact song he sang that night. And someone in the crowd goes, "Um, sorry, sir, were you uh, in the army at one point in this location? And he says, yes, I was. And this man says, I was one of the enemy. I had you in my sights. I was going to kill you. But then you started singing, and I thought, I like music. This guy's got a nice voice. I'll kill him after he finishes his song. (laughs) But you sang a song my mother sang to me when I was a child. And I was powerless to shoot you that night. What an amazing story. No clue someone's listening and someone's watching, but an outward expression of love and faith saved his life and I think saved the other man's life as well. I just met a woman this week. Um, shouldn't use her name because I think a lot of you know her and I know someone for sure knows her in the back. An amazing woman who lives a spirit-led life and constantly God is telling her something to do and she goes and she does it. She is visiting prisons, uh, orphanages, uh, hospitals. So she told the story of going to the hospital and the first time she went to the hospital. She didn't go to meet anyone she knew. She went because people in hospitals aren't getting visited, especially the poor who live in faraway areas. Their families can't get to them. Think about someone who lives two hours away at Frey Hospital in a rural area. No one's going to come and see them because it costs 800 to 1,000 rand just to visit. So they never get a visit. So she comes in, and she doesn't speak Corsa. So she goes up to this gentleman who's um, very sick, and she puts her arm around him, and she just starts praying for him. And he starts weeping, even though he doesn't understand what she's saying. Her love in that moment is impacting him. But she's feeling pretty useless because she's wanting to share the gospel, but she can't share the gospel because he doesn't understand her. So the idea she had in her mind when she came is not what ends up happening. And she actually gets a bit dejected. And she's kind of on her way out wondering if she should even keep doing this. And one of the staff was standing in the doorway watching her. And she didn't know. And he was so overcome by her love. He knew she didn't know this person from Adam. 
And he's watched many people come in and visit people. And this moved him. And as she walks past, this staff member goes up to her and says, Ma'am, I've never seen something like that before. What you did today moved me. That encouragement from that staff member she didn't even know was watching has set her on a ministry of doing this for years and years and years. Guys, who's watching you? And are you living a life where the love of God is just overflowing? It's not this osmosis inner thing just for you. It should be evident, evident in your prayer life, evident in your song life, evident in just your actions and your going. Man, people are watching you as they were Paul. And then suddenly there was a great earthquake. And um, some people have surmised that Paul and Silas were praying for freedom. And I want to contest that. I can't prove it. I mean, this is from silence. But I have two reasons why I do not think the earthquake is a response to, Lord, please help us. Get us out of here. Although it would logically follow. The first is, the word used here is, I'm not going to pronounce this right, those of you that are Greek amongst us, but I think I'm safe. Um, Prosecume. We'll go with that. The word is prosecume. And it means to pray, but with an emphasis on worship. So there are other words, that the Greek words that could have been used, that would have had a better emphasis for supplication, which means to ask for help. The word used here is not a prayer word asking for help. It's a prayer word of praise. So they were not saying, in my opinion, God, get us out of here. They were saying, God, no matter what happens to us, we praise you. The second reason, and I think this is obvious, why I do not think they were praying for freedom, is that after the earthquake comes and after the doors all swing open, everyone stays. I mean, my goodness. I almost laugh when I think of that happening. Can you imagine that? These guys were not trying to leave. I think God's presence came down in such a powerful way while these two were praising and worshiping Him in that place. And these people were watching and realizing this is something special happening here. This is not normal. People don't respond like this. We don't know what these people know. Even when an earthquake happens and releases you and says, off you go, guys, everyone's going, we're staying right here. There's no other place we'd rather be than right here, right now, God's presence. Have you experienced that? I remember being in a stadium, uh, Buffalo Park, as a young man, and uh, uh, it was a worship event, and God's Spirit came down in a powerful way, unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And I remember, like, my youth pastor saying, come, Mark, we need to go. And I remember everything in me going... I don't want to go. And it was supper time. I mean, I was getting hungry. I was like, I don't want to go home. I don't want to go eat. I want to stay here. And I remember this big surfer dude. I can still picture him. Long, flowing, blonde hair. He also, he wasn't part of our youth ministry, but at the same time, someone said to him, you got to go. And he was walking with us, and then suddenly he just turned back with shoulders slumped, looking longingly at that stadium, going, I've just experienced God's presence in a powerful way. I don't want to leave. Man, I think God showed up in a powerful way. So what is the point of the earthquake? It wasn't to free them. It was to show them that God is with these guys. Secondly, it was to wake the jailer up. 
the jailer had fallen asleep. And obviously, the earthquake happens. See, you might think this, they were, wanted to get free, and this is a story about freedom. And I agree with you. This is a story about freedom. But it's not freedom from earthly means. It's the jailer trapped in sin, and God had an appointment for Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas came to do a missionary work and evangelism. They did not expect to land up in prison, and they did not want to be there. But God, in his sovereign hand, had him exactly where he wanted them. He had them exactly where he wanted them. And I want to say to you, where are you? Could it be that even though you are somewhere you don't want to be, and you've got bigger plans for how you could be used in a different context, could it be that for one person to get saved around you, God has you in his sovereign hand exactly where he wants you to be? When I went to Oman, we couldn't speak any Arabic, and day one, we learned how to say hello, and my name is, and then we were told, you've got to go out and practice, which sounds easy, but there are no Arabs outside because it's 50 degrees, so they stay in their air-conditioned palaces and their air-conditioned vehicles, and I'm walking the, the, the dusty streets with sun beating down on me, trying to find someone I can practice going, uh, Masalama, okay? And I'm in my house. The, the house we were in, someone was taking us in for the first three weeks. We, we didn't have a place to stay. We did not choose that spot. See, this is how my brain works. I'm in this house. I need to practice Arabic. I need to make friends with Muslims because otherwise, what, why are we here? Even though there are challenges. And we don't have a car. So you know how my mind works? Sovereignly, I am exactly where I need to be. Somewhere close to here is the guy. It has to be. So I go out that first evening, and I walk until I see some boys playing soccer. It was at a little dusty soccer field, maybe 100 meters from the house. If it was any further, I might not have made it. I was already pretty <laughs> pup by the time I got there. But these guys were playing soccer, and so... I started playing with him. We stayed there two years. The biggest breakthrough we had in a family came from that soccer field, from that little brother who took me home to meet his older brother who ended up being the one that I ended up reading the Bible with, and he was an imam. And Anita's best friends became the wives and the spouse. It was a breakthrough that a lot of our contemporaries didn't see because I didn't stay in a house saying, this is impossible, they're not out on the streets. They don't want to hear from us. I don't have a car. What can, what, I, what can I do? I believed that God sovereignly has me exactly where he wants me. And someone is nearby that he wants me to reach. And that's what happened. The jailer is going to kill himself. And you might be wondering why. And the reason is, in Roman law, if you lost a prisoner you had to suffer the same fate that they were to suffer. So this poor guy lost every single hardened criminal in the area, he, so he thought. He was going to be publicly humiliated and executed. And so he was just going to uh, end it a lot quicker. And Paul obviously uh, says, hold on, buddy, we're all still here, which is amazing to him. 
And he asks this very important question. He says, what must I do to be saved? And I want to say to you, in a time where the gospel is diluted, and we've got a lot of mamby-pamby Christians who haven't really made a real response, you end up with people who add on heaven to their lives and go, yes, I'll put up my hand and accept Jesus. But if you never ask this question, what must I do to be saved, then you're not ready to meet the Savior. This man, in the presence of these godly men, and God's Spirit being there, is so convicted about his sins that he asks that question, what must I do to be saved? He senses that he is lost. I remember when that happened to me. For my whole life growing up, I was a goody two-shoes who wanted to go to heaven and did all the right things to impress God. Never once did I ever have an overwhelming feeling of, I'm lost. I had a feeling of, keep trying, keep doing more, you might get there. And it never worked, but I kept doing that. And I still remember the moment a man was preaching the gospel to me, and suddenly I became aware. I just knew, I'm done for. There is nothing I can do. Nothing I've done will work, and nothing I can do will work. I am done for. I cried out in that moment in my heart, what can I do to be saved? When you reach that moment, you're ready to meet him. When we tell you just believe in Jesus and uh, everything goes well with you and come along to church and whatever, we're doing you an injustice. I'm wondering in this room, are there any of you who need to ask that question the jailer asked? What must I do to be saved? And Paul gives a very simple response. Some commentators think he should have said more. Because all he says is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your household will be saved. He doesn't mention repentance, and I'll answer that for you. The jailer is already repenting. In his question, he's acknowledging his sin, and he's saying, I am lost. How can I be saved? And so Paul goes to, but he does say two very powerful things. They happen very fast, and I want to pause here and help you understand them. When he says believe, he doesn't mean intellectual belief up here. I'm telling you, in this world... If we had to ask 8 billion people, do they believe that Jesus Christ uh, is the Son of God, we will have billions of people say yes. I do not think that we will have billions of people who are going to go to heaven. Not everyone who can answer the question, Jesus is God, is necessarily going to go to heaven because that's an intellectual answer. It's like um, saying what is the capital of England? And we can all say London, but some of us can say it with a glint in our eye because of the memories we have from actually being there. Do you actually know this Jesus that you proclaim? Because when you accept him, when you believe in him, something happens that starts a relationship and evidence flows out of that. We're going to get to that now. The jailer displays four evidences that I know for sure he is saved. And I want to ask you this question. Don't simply believe. Believe means, here's another Greek expert. It says this. He says this. W.E. Vine defines belief. There's three things. A firm conviction which produces full acknowledgement of God's revelation of truth. A conviction. Not just a, like, four times four is 16. A mental note. A conviction within you that this thing is true. 
The second thing is a personal surrender to the truth. If it is true, and Jesus is God, and he's died on the cross for you, and you believe that, then there will be a surrender of your whole being to the truth. Not just an add-on, give me heaven, and I'll keep going and living my life the way I want to. Which we see happening over and over again because the gospel's been poorly preached. And the third part of the belief is a conduct, the way you behave, inspired and consistent with the surrender. So someone who says to me, I believe in Jesus, I am convicted by that, and I have surrendered to that. Their lives will match up with that, if you really believe. Those three things are all part of that one word, belief. Do not confuse yourself and go, oh, no, I know Jesus is the Son of God. You need to ask yourself, do you believe in this thing? And is it, are you willing to surrender your whole life to this? And is your life changing because you've done that? If you've done that, it will change. If you haven't done that, it won't change. And that's a sign. No, 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 somewhere along the line, I've missed the boat. The second thing Paul says when he says believe, the next part of the truth is he says, the Lord Jesus. That word Lord is crucial. A lot of us come to Jesus as Savior. Uh, Yay, Jesus saved me. I'm going to go to heaven. I now captain my own ship and keep living the way I want to live. And that's not how we come to him. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. If he's your Lord, he's your king. And that means the surrender is what I spoke about earlier. If a Christian tells me I've been a Christian for 30 years and I've never heard God speak to me, I'm saying there's a serious red flag over your life. You can sort that out. You can go to him and ask him why. Because it should be that he speaks, he's your Lord, and you do. You follow. You obey. I don't know how to obey, Lord. I don't hear you. My sheep will hear my voice. My sheep will hear my voice. If you claim to be a sheep and you don't hear the voice, you have to ask why. Something's gone wrong along the way that you can sort out still this side of heaven before you get a surprise. Paul says simple sentence, but it's powerful. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. What does household mean? It does not mean that because of the jailer's belief, his whole household got saved. I wish that was the case because then I know that everyone around me that I love and care about that's close to me is safe. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that. What does it mean then? Well, it should be phrased like this. So the the sentence, at least in my translation, ESV says, um, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, if they believe. So it's implied that the first part that means for him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, the attachment onto it applies to the first part of the sentence. If they believe in the Lord Jesus, they too will be saved. Every single person needs to make a personal decision to follow Christ. Every person. My son, Sebastian, is not a Christian. Olivia is not a Christian. They do not just fall under by proxy through me that they inherit Christianity. And if you think you're a Christian because of your parents' heritage, I want to say to you, you've missed the boat. Every person has to come to a personal decision to follow Christ. But Mark, I believe God's going to save my whole household. I do too. 
But that doesn't mean I just sit back and kind of go, yeah, it's going to happen. That means I pray for that with everything until they respond, until they make their personal decision. And so far, I've seen 90% of it come. I was the first. I've seen my dad go, my mom, my oldest brother, and I'm just waiting for the last one. But that means I'm praying every day, Lord, would you save him? Lord, if it takes going through these terrible circumstances that he's going through, for your glory, would you save him? It's my only prayer. It's the only thing I care about. Health is great, but I don't care if he's healthy his whole life and uh, falls into eternity without, without Jesus. So Spurgeon says this. How does he apply house? He says, but those last words about my house, Lord, I would not run away with half a promise when thou dost give a whole one. I beseech thee, save all my family, save the nearest and dearest, convert the children and the grandchildren, if I have any. Be gracious to my servants and all who dwell under my roof or work for me. Thou makest this promise to me personally, if I believe in the Lord Jesus, I beseech thee to do as thou hast said. I would go over in my prayer every day the names of all my brothers and sisters, parents, children, friends, relatives, and servants. And this is the key. Give thee no rest until your word is fulfilled. Don't just accept this promise that it's just going to happen. They have to make a personal decision to follow Christ. So God, this is something that's going to come at you for the rest of my days. Sebastian, reveal yourself to him. I will not let you rest. You're going to get no break from this one until it happens. Reveal yourself to him. I do not assume it. And I want to close with the fruit in keeping with repentance. Two minutes ago. What are the four um, evidences? I said there's four evidences that the um, jailer has truly repented. He's not just put his hand up and answered a question and had a prayer prayed because now you see what happens. The very next thing that happens in the story is he takes these guys into his house and he washes and he cleans them. His heart has shifted from Hardened and abusive earlier in the story to compassion. I don't know how you watch that Leah advert movie and not have a tear in your eye. That was the compassion of God from people on the most broken in our society. May that move us if we really know Jesus. May we be there in June. I, I watched that video going, Lord, why wasn't I there? How did I miss that? He shows compassion. He also shows obedience. This is such a key thing for me. Are you being obedient? Paul tells him that you need to get baptized, and he gets baptized immediately. For those of you out there, hardened Baptists, who love your three-month programs before we baptize someone just to make sure they really understand, there is a place in Scripture where we can be sure they have given their life to Christ. And when they have, there need not be a wait if it's genuine. I get it if people just want to get baptized and they don't really understand. I'm all for having a process and making sure. I'm just saying, this happened immediately because he was there. And they explained, you go, well, how did the family know? It says in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. That was the time where they discussed this thing further. And the family then believed. They didn't just do what the jailer did. They believed personally because of what was explained to them in verse 32. But they obeyed. Compassion, obedience. 
The third thing he does is fellowship. He brings them into his house and he feeds them and they enjoy sweet fellowship together. I worry about Christians in isolation. Christians that prefer to be away from other people who want to do it on their own. An evidence of salvation is a desire for fellowship. Are you in a small group? Mark, my small group, I don't really like it. I get it. No small groups are perfect. But if you don't have a desire for fellowship, it's one of the evidences. And the last evidence is the one we started with. In the final verse, it says, and he rejoiced. This guy was suicidal a few verses earlier. He was going to take his life. But after meeting Christ, he rejoices. The word is jump for joy. When was the last time you jumped for joy? Sadly for me, it was when Liverpool scored a goal in a stupid soccer match. That's enough to make me... Joey and I will hug each other and cry like miserable uh, idiots over something so unimportant. When was the last time something God did just made you jump for joy? He rejoices. Those four evidences, this guy is really saved. So in application, are circumstances influencing the way you see God? Or is your relationship with God influencing the way you see your circumstances? If it's the first, come here. If circumstances are influencing the way you see God, then come to Him and look at Him. Stop looking at the circumstances. The thing you put your focus on will dominate. Whatever you spend more time on will dominate. Who's watching you? I'm going to come to you at some point as you saw me, and I'm going to say, what's your out? And I want to hear, I've been praying for this person. Are you thinking of inviting someone to Alpha? Everyone should be inviting someone to Alpha. Who's watching you? That God wants you to go and just say, hey, man, you want to come and hear more about God at Alpha? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Or have you only accepted Him as Savior? Is he someone you're willing to commit your whole life to and say, whatever you say, I'll do? That's real Christianity. And there's a price on that. And lastly, is there evidence in your life that you have repented? Just like the jailer, there's evidence we can point to. He has repented. Is there evidence in your life that you have repented?